Hi, this is Chad Dull. Welcome to my Poverty Informed Podcast. also hoping this week to get back to doing some actual writing. I've kind of gotten out of the habit this summer uh, because of a number of changes going on. Uh, The most exciting one is that uh, I actually start a new job next week as the Vice President of Academic Affairs at Minnesota State College Southeast. Um, That is very exciting, obviously. And when I interviewed for the job, I talked about this notion of poverty-informed practice and how I wanted to bring it to a larger audience. So I'm excited about that, but it is nerve-wracking. I had spent a lot of years at my prior college building a network of support, uh, getting those ideas embedded, so I will be anxious to start writing again about what this looks like uh, at a new place. Um, The timing of what I'm looking at this week seems kind of ironic. I just got back from two days of training to get certified as a Beagle Poverty Coach with Dr. Donna Beagle. Uh, And we talked a lot about action planning and what it would take to lead a movement around poverty-informed practice. And when I look back last November, that's exactly what I was writing about. And I was talking about a pretty personal change uh, for me, even though talking about myself isn't always my favorite thing. It seems to tell the story pretty well this time. Uh, And a change I had to make in my practice. Uh, And it serves as a good reminder as I evolve into the role next week. So without uh, hesitation... This article is called Poverty-Informed Practice in Higher Education, Changing the Reflexive No. One of my favorite moments of this year was a phone call with Dr. Sarah Goldrick Rabb a couple of months ago, and not just because of my excitement that she wanted to talk to me. I had reached out to her in January about starting an emergency fund on our campus that I wanted to model on her FAST fund, and I wanted to use that name. She had graciously allowed me to, but now we found out that we hadn't quite done it the way it was intended, and our faculty union was also applying to start a fund that we hoped to merge with. Now, I'm glad to say we found solutions, um, but what I remember from my conversation with Sarah was at one point she said, I'm sorry, I didn't actually realize you were an administrator, or, or something close to that. It made me laugh, and it felt like a compliment, but it also made me think. What was I not doing that made me seem less administrative? She made me think about what I have come to call the reflexive no. Changing the reflexive no has probably been the biggest personal change for me since our commitment to poverty-informed practice. This era of austerity in higher education tends to make many of us in that field risk-averse. And even if early in your career you were an envelope pusher, it's hard not to get more careful as you get more veteran. That had certainly happened to me. I had defaulted to being reasonable. In practice, that meant that if you brought me an idea that was outside of the box I had developed, my instinct was to start with probably not, instead of why not or how. It was an insidious change because my position and veteran status gave me some status and an air of authority which made my reflexive skepticism seem wiser than it was. It also rewarded comfortable, policy and procedure-based thinking, which is not as person-centered as a poverty-informed approach should be. So with the best of intentions, I had developed a reflexive no to new ideas and novel solutions. It seems very stereotypically administrative looking back. 
I'm not so reasonable anymore, and let me tell you how I got there. Well, first, I was lucky to be surrounded by some excellent colleagues who believe, as my friend Kara Crowley from Amarillo says, that no is the beginning of a conversation. I've talked about Tanya, our Project Proven Guru, and Mandy, my Associate Dean, before, but it's hard to explain how hard they have had to work to bring me back to my senses. They are the brave souls who got me to understand the irony of advocating for FAST-type funds and then having a GED fund that required students to meet with me for approval. They also have a standing joke about the day I told them they could not bring me any more new ideas. Now, I remember saying they couldn't hit me with new ideas first thing in the morning, but they are pretty sure it was a permanent ban. Uh, one they didn't follow, by the way. Over time, I started to see that their tendency to say yes and why not led to really good results for students. In fact, my best management of either of them was to marshal resources to support their ideas and their tendency to have a reflexive yes and not my reflexive reluctance. So, with that experience, I started to see things differently, and that meant information was processed differently. Once I dropped my reflexive and wise initial no, I could see flaws in thinking more clearly, and particularly in our lack of poverty-informed practice. So many of our rules were based on this notion of readiness, a notion that doesn't seem valid through new eyes. To assume there is such a thing as being ready also assumes we have decided that there is a thing called college, and we know exactly what it is and exactly what it takes to succeed there. It seems farcical to me through that lens that we had this idea of college ready. I work at an open admission institution in a division that is supposed to embody the promise of open access. If that division defines readiness as anything else than entering our doors, I think we are doing a disservice. One of our tenets of poverty-informed practice is that we examine policies and procedures to find ways to support students, not punish and exclude them. I'll have to give credit to Dr. Beagle on that one, and she did bring it up this week. Dr. Beagle recently shared on social media and in the training I was in that without poverty-informed supports, a student in the crisis of generational poverty has roughly an 11% chance of succeeding. That is awful and requires us to default to yes when thinking of ways to support them and eliminate barriers. But before I shifted to yes and why not, I did not have the courage of my convictions. In fact, last winter I helped craft a student success document for our college, and one of the statements I included was, every barrier that can be removed should be removed. I predicted that would get pared out, and it was, and at the time it seemed reasonable. But now, that statement is the fundamental premise that guides our poverty-informed work within my division. That's a shift, and it's important. That statement has driven more change in my division in six months than in the prior six years. I'm not a huge fan of telling stories about myself, but in this case, I'm a pretty good example of the mind shift needed to move towards poverty-informed practice. Twelve months ago, if you would have asked people about me, People would have told you I was an advocate for students in poverty and I really made them think. But I'm afraid thinking was about all that happened. Defaulting to yes instead of a reflexive no changed everything. It made me see that our students with barriers teach us how to improve like other students never could. It made me realize that most barriers at the college 
are just human constructs and therefore subject to change. I've become fond of saying, just because a decision was made a long time ago, it doesn't mean it's any more valid or well thought out than one we could make today. So why not make the one that goes towards access and support? At the Real College convening in September, Dr. Darian Pollard challenged us to show raw courage and to be willing to experience good trouble on behalf of students. Defaulting to yes and losing the reflexive no seems like a good way to meet that challenge.